Amen. Good morning. It is an honor to get to be here with you guys this morning uh, to share a little bit with you over the next 30 minutes. As Kevin said, uh, I'm the youth pastor at Keystone Church, so normally at this time I'm just down the road about five minutes from you guys. Uh, I've been there for the past five and a half years. Uh, And so a couple things that you should know about me, a couple important things to know about me. Uh, Number one, I have one son. uh, His name's Oliver. And he actually is just about to turn a year old. He's turning a year old on Tuesday. And so we had his first birthday party yesterday. He had his first takes of cake, uh, probably still jacked up from all the sugar. But he's with grandma right now, so that's her problem to deal with. Uh, Number two, I've been married to my wife, Bree, for the past seven years. Uh, Today is actually our seven-year anniversary. So it's awesome. (laughs) Say that to you guys. Number three, this is not nearly as significant as those, but important for today, uh, I actually have my Class A commercial driver's license. And I'm a youth pastor, I don't drive truck, but I wanted to show you my license, uh, because it's kind of ridiculous, but also just so you can see that it has CDL down the corner. And in case you're not familiar with that, what what that means is I am uh, legally allowed to go out on Route 30 right now, get in an 18-wheeler, and drive that down Route 30. There's just one really small problem with that. I've never, ever, ever driven an 18-wheeler in my life. Never driven a tractor-trailer before in my life. Uh, I don't know if that does anything to boost your confidence in our Pennsylvania Department of Transportation or not, uh, and if you want to know, well, how in the world did you get your CDL without ever driving a tractor trailer, I can tell you afterwards. Uh, but the important thing is that it's because I have my CDL and that I continue to renew it that I found out I had to get glasses a couple of years ago. So every two years, you have to go get a physical for your CDL. Luckily for me, they only ask questions like, uh, are you taking any medications? Have you had any health issues? And not... Have you ever actually driven a tractor trailer before? (laughs) So I'm able to keep renewing my CDL. Um, But I had a feeling when I was going a couple years ago that I was going to need to get glasses because I would play this game with my wife uh, that I like to call, what's the score? Where I would turn on a sports game and in the lower right-hand corner where they'd have the score and kind of the time left, I would try to guess what are the numbers on there. And usually it would end with my wife saying, no, that's wrong. You need to get your eyes checked out. They're bad. But I figured, how bad can it really be? Uh, sixes look like eights. Uh, and, and who hasn't confused a one for a zero at some point in their life? It can't be that bad. But I went, and my CDL doctor said, uh, it's really bad. I'm not going to pass you unless you go get glasses. And so I, I had to go through the process, get my glasses. And I can still remember the first time that I uh, drove out onto the road with my glasses on. It was incredible the difference it made. It's like, this is how I'm actually supposed to be seeing? Uh, you mean I can see stop signs more than 30 feet in advance? That I, that I can read road signs clearly? This is how my eyes are supposed to work? I, I forgot what it was like because my eyes were that bad for so long. It's amazing what the right set of lenses can do for us. And I think that's true when it comes to Christianity as well. That one of the ways for us to think about Christianity is to think about it as a set of lenses that helps us view and interpret the world around us. 
So Leslie Newbigin has this quote, which I, I love. It says, the Christian story provides us with a set of lenses, not something for us to look at, but something for us to look through. And I think that's not just the case when we become a Christian. We say when we become a Christian, we get this new set of lenses. But I think it's actually that as we grow as Christians, we grow in learning to see the world through the lens of Christianity. And that's uh, my big idea for this morning to be able to share. Growing as a Christian means seeing more clearly. To, to show this or to look at this, I want to look at a story in 2 Kings. So it's 2 Kings 6, if you want to open up there, um, kind of towards the beginning, also towards the middle. I think it's page 419 for me. We're going to look at 2 Kings 6, 8 through 23 this morning and kind of break it up into different chunks. Uh, before we do, before I read that, just a little bit of background on this story. So this takes place uh, when Elisha is a prophet in Israel. The story involves the king of Aram, which is also would be known like modern-day Syria. And so apart from reading it, I'm going to refer to him as the king of Syria. It involves the king of Israel, and it involves one of Elisha's servants. And one of the important things to know as we read this story is to know that Syria is kind of enemy number one for Israel at this time. That they are the main military threat to Israel. And that's where this story is situated in. So let me pray for us again, and then we'll start by reading verses 8 through 15, or 8 through 14. Father, I trust that your word is powerful, far more powerful than my words. And so, God, I look to you in confidence today that you are able to speak, because you do speak through the scriptures. And so I pray that you would speak to us, that you would speak through me. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, starting in uh, chapter 6, verse 8, and we'll read up to 14 to start. Now, the king of Aram was at war with Israel. After conferring with his officers, he said, I will set up my camp in such and such a place. The man of God sent word to the king of Israel, Beware of passing that place, because the Aramaeans are going down there. So the king of Israel checked on the place indicated by the man of God. Time and again, Elisha warned the king so that he was on his guard in such places. This enraged the king of Aram. He summoned his officers and demanded of them, Will you not tell me which of us is on the side of the king of Israel? None of us, my lord the king, said one of his officers. But Elisha, the prophet who was in Israel, tells the king of Israel the very words you speak in your bedroom. Go, find out where he is, the king ordered, so I can send men and capture him. The report came back. He is in Dothan. Then he sent horses and chariots with a strong force there. They went by night and surrounded the city. It's a little refresh of what's happening in those verses. The king of Syria is trying to covertly send in bands of soldiers. Going to surprise the king of Israel by sending in these bands of soldiers. There's just one problem. The king of Israel always seems to be one step ahead of the king of Syria. And so the king of Syria comes to the natural conclusion, we've got a rat. We've got a rat. I think of like any good mafia story. There's someone on the inside that we have to deal with. But his servants tell him, oh, wait a second, there, you've got one thing wrong there. 
It's not someone on our side who's informing them. It's Elisha. Elisha knows the very words you speak when you're in your bedroom. I think of who wouldn't want Elisha on their team? People like nations, uh, the NSA, uh, the Patriots, the Astros. People would kill to have this guy on their team because he knows what the other side is thinking without even being there. And so the king comes up with, I've got a problem. I've got to deal with this. And so he sends in an army trying to find out where Elisha is, trap him, deal with this problem. Without ever even thinking, I think this is important to see, without ever even thinking, maybe it's not Elisha who's the main problem. Maybe it is the God of Elisha who sees and knows and hears everything. So we, we look at the king of Syria and we see he sees this situation completely disconnected from God. And that's why I want to draw out the, the first point this morning, that, oh, that we, I'm going backwards, sorry. There we go. We have a tendency to see life disconnected from God, even as Christians. Now, I'm not saying the king of Syria was a Christian, but I'm saying we as Christians still have this tendency to see life disconnected from God today. That, that maybe we might say we believe in God, we know the gospel, we even might know a lot of the right answers, but sometimes our day-to-day life can be approached in a way that is almost completely disconnected from God. It's what some people refer to as practical atheism. The idea that we, we believe in a certain thing, but it doesn't necessarily always impact how we live. This is a, a great quote by a guy named Travis Peterson that I think sums it up. Christians, if we are honest, there are times when if we are not careful, we will live like fools, even when we say with our lips that God is there. When we live for ourselves, when we act as though we must solve all our own problems, when we fail to trust God for the future, when we look for others to blame for our problems, when we act without prayer, we live as fools, as practical atheists. And I think that's such a danger still for me, and I think all of us as Christians today, to, to view life disconnected from God. And if you look at the king of Syria, you see kind of that last line come through. We live as fools. Because the king of Syria is really foolish in this story. You, maybe you didn't catch it when we read through the first time, but just think about it with me for a second. He finds out that Elisha knows the words that he says to his servants in his bedroom. So he says to his servants, go find Elisha. Like, Elisha's not going to hear that. He finds, then when he finds out where Elisha is, the man who knows the movements of his troops, he moves troops to go try to catch Elisha. Not only that, but he has the boldness to do it, like, let's send him in by night because maybe we might surprise Elisha and he won't see it coming. When you look at this story again closely, we see the king of Syria looks like an absolute fool. And yet I wonder, how often do I look that way when I'm approaching life disconnected from what I know and believe about God? How do I look when I relentlessly try to get my own way? How do I look when I try to solve problems in my life without first going to God in prayer? How do I look when I'm anxious and worried about everything that's happening in my life, even though God has promised to take care of me? 
I'd probably start to look like a fool, especially before God. And I notice that the king's solution not only looks foolish, but it actually makes things worse. He sends a large portion of his army into what amounts as a trap, that when we act on our own wisdom, we tend to end up making things worse. Uh, I grew up watching Home Improvement with my family. I don't know how many of you are familiar with that show, but Tim the Toolman Taylor is infamous at making things worse with his solutions. Uh, the lawnmower's broken? Great. I can fix it, and I can add 50 horsepower while I'm at it. Problem solved, right? It just makes it worse. Or, it, it, more recent times, I think of The Office. Michael Scott in The Office is a case study in how you make things worse by trying to solve the problems. Oh, we, we're losing one of our workers from our branch to another branch? What should we do about that? Let's go steal their copier. That would be a good solution. And then just makes it worse. And we watch these shows or other ones, because pretty much any comedy is like that, and think, man, that's so dumb. What are they doing? And you have to wonder, isn't that how we look and how we act when we approach life disconnected from God? as if we can figure it all out, as if we don't need them, as if it's just problems to solve. And so the, the first question I want to ask this morning is, where in your life, where in your life do you tend to see things disconnected from God? I think of maybe it's a person you see as a problem to be dealt with rather than someone who's made in the image of God who you're called to love. Maybe it's a situation in your life that you think, I just need to figure this out, I just need to muscle through this, I can fix this on my own, rather than seeing it as an opportunity to rely on God and recognize our own weakness and our need for him. Where in your life, where in my life, do we still see things disconnected from God? Because we're all prone to do that, just like the king of Syria. The king of Syria doesn't see clearly, as we know, and so the story continues on with him sending his army in. We pick up in verse 15 in chapter 6. When the servant of the man, so this is the servant of Elisha, of God, got up and went out early the next morning, an army with horses and chariots had surrounded the city. Oh, my Lord, what shall we do? The servant asked. Don't be afraid, the prophet answered. Those who are with us are more than those who are with them. And Elisha prayed, Oh, Lord, open his eyes so he may see. Then the Lord opened the servant's eyes, and he looked and saw the hills full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. So again, we can kind of summarize this part. Uh, the servant of Elisha walks out in the morning, and he looks out with his morning coffee and sees armies all around. All around. What are we going to do? So he runs back to Elisha and has the same response I would have. We're, we're doomed. We're surrounded. There's no way out. What are we supposed to do? And Elisha walks out, looks out, and says these words, which I think is the line that should stick with us from the story. Those who are with us are more than those who are against us. Because that's actually a line that's going to be repeated again and again in the Bible if we trace it out. Those who are with us, if God is with us, who can be against us? He who is in us is greater than he who is in the world. That's what Elijah is pointing out here. And so he points out the truth, and then he prays for his servant. And all of a sudden, the servant opens his eyes, 
and things look a little different. I love the image of him opening his eyes. The Syrian army is still there. The problem hasn't disappeared. But all of a sudden, there's this other army of chariots and angels and horses of fire surrounding and protecting them. What one moment seemed hopeless now is full of hope. And where one moment he couldn't see clearly, now the fog has started to lift and he's able to see. See, we learn from this part that God opens our eyes so that we can see clearly. That's probably not a radical new truth. God opens our eyes so we can see clearly. That this is what happens when we become a Christian. We know from 2 Corinthians, uh, I think I have it up here, 4, 4 through 6, that God has to open our eyes for us to see the truth of the gospel. But then Paul would also say in 2 Corinthians, it's as we see more clearly, as we see God, as we behold him, that's how we grow. And so we're dependent on God to continually open our eyes to help us see what we can't see in our own strength. And what I love about this story that we're reading is, I think it gives us a little picture of how God often does that, of what he does to help us see more clearly as Christians. The first thing is, God uses his word to help us see more clearly. And so I think in this case, Elisha is the prophet. And so when people go to Elisha, they know what he says is God's word. And so what he speaks in this case is meant to be God's word. We know today we've got this book that God speaks through. And this is the book that God helps us to make sense of life and circumstances and everything we face in relationship to him. It helps us to understand and interpret the world around us. There's a a quote that I use kind of often by a guy named Karl Barth. Maybe you've heard of him, maybe not. Um, That's not important. The quote is what's important. He said to people, take your Bibles in one hand, take your newspaper in the other hand, read both of them, but interpret your newspaper through the Bible. I'm a youth pastor, and so when I, when I say that quote to students, I'm like, you don't read newspapers anymore, probably, most of you. But you do watch Netflix. You do listen to Spotify or Apple Music. You, you are on social media, all sorts of other things. Watch that. Look at that. Listen to that. But read this and interpret those things through this. Not in that, but I think the Bible helps us just to make sense uh, or to change how we view our day-to-day circumstances. I think of how many times I quote uh, Isaiah 41 to end to myself. Fear not, for I'm with you. Be not dismayed, for I'm your God. I will help you. I will strengthen you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. That can change how I'm viewing a certain circumstance, even in an instant. God is with me. God is in control. God will help me. Scripture has the power to change how we view this world and our lives. And it's one of the things that God uses. Here's another one we see from this story that I think is important. God uses other people to help us see clearly. In this story, it's Elisha who God uses to help his servant see clearly. We desperately need other people to help us see what we can't always see on our own. I think of when when I was younger, My family uh, used to, many of our vacations would be, we would go out camping for the weekend or for the week. And I can remember one camping trip very specifically. Because we were out camping and we went to a local park uh, to play baseball, to play on the playground, 
and we were just getting ready to leave, just getting ready to head back to our cars and then head back to the campsite, when all of a sudden, I saw a dog kind of at the corner of the woods. Now, to understand this story, you have to understand uh, one thing about me. I love dogs. I love dogs. Uh, I think that dogs are kind of like this taste of heaven that we get here and now. Just as I think that cats are here to remind us of how much sin has messed up this world. So that's not in the Bible, just my personal opinion. Take it for what it is. So I, I love dogs. So I see this dog, I'm like, I have to meet this dog. I've got to pet this dog. I've got to find out what the deal is. And so I start heading over to this dog. Luckily, someone else saw me, I think it was my mom, and came after me and caught up to me because I was only three or four years old and pulled me back and took me back to the van. Because it wasn't a dog at all. It was actually a bear. And I was running straight for it. It turns out, I think I probably needed glasses far earlier than like three years ago, but I don't know if my parents didn't want to pay or what the deal was. But, but the point is, I needed someone else to help me see what I couldn't see there. And that remains so true of us as Christians today. That maybe it is we don't see some sin as dangerous as we should. Maybe it is that we look at a certain situation and we think it looks hopeless. Maybe it is we just feel anxious and overwhelmed with what's going on, or we're questioning our own value and worth despite the identity we have in Christ. And we need other people who will listen to us, who will remind us of the truth, and who will pray for us. I think that's part of the beauty of the church. It's why we need the church and we need other Christians, because we don't always see clearly on our own, just as Elisha's servant didn't see clearly in this case. Here's the final thing, I think, this story, uh, just repeating what I already said. God is the one who enables us to see. That Elisha can speak the truth to his servant, but then it's ultimately God who has to open his eyes. And I think that should be encouraging to us as we think about other people in our lives. People who maybe, maybe they aren't Christians or maybe they are Christians, but we see something they don't see, and we're trying to tell them. We're trying to point them to Christ, or we're trying to warn them of danger, and they just don't see it. I think it's so encouraging for us to remember, we can speak the truth, and then we just pray desperately that God would open their eyes to help them see, because we can't do that on our own. The story doesn't end, though, with Elisha's servant getting his sight. It continues on and ends in, I think, a kind of shocking way. And so let's keep reading. We'll read Uh, verses 18 down to 23. As the enemy came down toward him, Elisha prayed to the Lord, strike these people with blindness. So he struck them with blindness, as Elisha had asked. Elisha told them, this is not the road, and this is not the city. Follow me, and I will lead you to the man you are looking for. And he led them to Samaria. After they entered the city, Elisha said, Lord, open the eyes of these men so they can see. Then the Lord opened their eyes, and they looked, and there they were inside Samaria. When the king of Israel saw them, he asked Elisha, Shall I I kill them, my father? Shall I kill them? Do not kill them, he answered. Would you kill men you have captured with your own sword or bow? Set food and water before them, so that they may eat and drink, and then go back to their master. So he prepared a great feast for them, and after they had finished eating and drinking, he sent them away, and they returned to their master. So the bands of 
from Aram stopped raiding Israel's territory. So this army descends on Elisha and his servant, but God blinds them. And then I I love this picture because I think uh, it's always awkward for men to ask directions. Uh, How much more when you're asking the person you're supposed to be looking for in this case? And Elisha's like, yeah, I'll I'll take you where you need to go. Leads them straight into uh, the king of Israel's house. And the king of Israel, I think, has the same question I would. Here's my enemy, hand delivered to me. Should we get rid of them? Should I kill them? And Elisha says, no, 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 you wouldn't kill someone who you captured with your own sword, so why would you kill them? I picture the king thinking about this, and, okay, well, well, maybe we should at least keep them as a bargaining chip so we can get back some of our own prisoners or, or so that we can uh, convince this other king to stop raiding. And Elisha says, no, 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 throw them a party and then send them home? And I picture, maybe this didn't happen, but I picture the king of Israel's jaw just dropping. Like, Elisha, you don't get this war thing. You don't capture your enemies so that you can feed them, give them drink, throw them a party, and then send them on their way. That's not how it works. Like, what in the world is going on here? I think what's going on here is like every story in the Old Testament we are being pointed forward to the gospel. Because I think of where else does God treat people who are his enemies and deserve to die instead giving them a feast? It's in the gospel. It's God giving up his son so that we look forward to an endless party with him in the new heavens and the new earth. And how does that happen? I think because one day there's going to be another prophet more than a prophet, Jesus is God, but also a prophet. And he's going to stand in a garden and he's going to be surrounded by his enemies. And one of his servants is going to take out his sword and try to attack back and fight back. And Jesus in this case says, no, stop. If I wanted to, I could call down legions of angels. Maybe some of the same ones that were in the story of Elisha. I could call them down an instant but then how would scripture be fulfilled? And so this prophet, instead of blinding his enemies, dies to save his enemies. Think of that. Think of when I grasp that Jesus gave up his life for me, it should change how I view everything. It should change how we view everything. That's the last point this morning, that the gospel changes how we view or see all of life. I think of, um, I I read some stories or listen to stories from the 1960s. I wasn't alive then. Some of you were alive then. But I I love uh, reading and listening to stories about uh, what the U.S. did to put a man on the moon. It's an incredible accomplishment. And yet hearing about all the sacrifice that went into it and all the risk and all the trials that they ran into. And, And in reading some of the stories, I found out one of the things that they were really concerned about was What if we get someone up there and they're orbiting the moon or they actually end up getting down to the moon and they die? The thought was, we're going to forever change how people see the moon when they look up at the night sky because people are going to look up there and be reminded someone died up there and it's going to change how people see the moon. I think of when we grasp that someone died for us 
not only that, but lived for us and was raised for us, it doesn't change how we view the moon, but it does change how we view all of life. For myself, I think of when I'm pessimistic and cynical about life, which happens more often than it should, the gospel reminds me if God could save someone like me, then he can do anything. When I'm self-righteous and judgmental of other people, the gospel reminds me the only thing I have to brag about is God's grace. And so there's no good reason for me to be judgmental or self-righteous. When the circumstances of life feel hopeless to me, the gospel reminds me I have a living hope in Jesus Christ that nothing will ever take away from me. And when I feel overwhelmed, I feel anxious, I feel tempted to despair, the gospel reminds me again, he who is with me is greater than he who is in the world. If God is for us, who can be against us? See, the gospel is what changes how we view all of life. And it's by growing and understanding the gospel and seeing how it changed our life that we end up being changed. I want to close with two questions, kind of application questions this morning. The first one would be, where in your life do you need God to open your eyes to see differently? We all constantly need God to continually be opening our eyes to see differently. Uh, Maybe it's just you've, you've never even grasped the gospel before and you need God to open your eyes to, what does it mean that Jesus gave up his life for me and was raised again? Uh, maybe it's just a certain circumstance or a relationship or something difficult that, that you've not even thought about, what does God want for me in this? And just been thinking about it of, how do I fix this? How do I, I solve this? Where would God want to open up your eyes, my eyes, to see differently this morning? And then the second question is this. Where does God want to use you to help someone else see clearly? Where does he want to use you to help someone else see clearly? Maybe it's you've known, I need to talk to this person about something. I see something they don't see. And you just know, I need God to give me the courage to be able to do that. Maybe it's, there's someone in your life, you've already pointed out, uh, hey, where you're headed is not good. Or, hey, you need to turn to Christ and You just need to be reminded to pray desperately for them. I think of for my own life, that was true of me in high school. My parents endlessly pointed out, you're not headed down a good path, but it was ultimately because they prayed over and over and over and over again for me that I eventually saw that when God opened my own eyes. Where does God want to use you to help someone else to see clearly? And where does he want to open your eyes to see life a little bit differently? Because no matter where you're at, God wants to do those two things. And it's as he opens our eyes and as he uses us to help other people see more clearly that he gives us the corrective lenses to see life through the lens of the gospel. Let's pray. God, I'm so grateful that you're a God who helps us to see because we are so often blind or other people are blind and we can't point out to them what we see. And so, God, we are desperate for you to help us see life through the scripture, through the gospel, and ultimately to have you open our eyes. God, I pray this morning that you would uh, speak and move and work and help us to see both where you want us to see life differently because of you and where you might want us to help other people see differently. pray this in Jesus' name.